So with that, I'm going to turn this over to Commonweal's president and founder, Michael Lerner, who is going to introduce our speakers today and begin the event. Thank you, Susan. Um, Susan Braun, our executive director, is uh, uh, somebody that, that, if you don't know her yet, I encourage you to get to know. She's been at Commonweal for over two years and is making a very powerful impact on our community. So I encourage you, if you're part of the West Marin community and haven't gotten to know Susan yet, please do so. Um, while Ken mics up our two guests, I'm just going to say a couple of uh, introductory words. And I want to uh, extend a, a very, very warm welcome to two longtime Bolinas residents, George and Ann Hogel, who are sitting in the front here. Um, many of you know George and Ann. Uh, George is a, a Jungian analyst uh, of uh, great repute who's been involved in the Bay Area Jungian community for a long time. Uh, Ann is a painter who has had two exhibits, two full exhibits at Commonweal and contributed to other exhibits. Um, and um, so we're very, very grateful to have them back in Bolinas. Uh, George is um, celebrating his 97th year and is, um, uh, points out that his driver's license doesn't run out for another four years. So uh, <laughs> he's planning to stay around at least that long and um, hopefully longer. <laughs> so uh, these are very special people who... Uh, have made a great contribution to our community and to Commonweal, and we just welcome you back. It's really nice to have you. Yeah. Again, I'll start informally uh, by welcoming Jean Shinoda Bolin and Christina Flanagan. Uh, Christina is also a Bolinas resident, in fact, inherited George and Ann's house from them and has been part of the community for quite a while and um, uh, is a, um, on the board of the San Francisco Opera and they keep giving her more and more to do there. So I think it's a lifetime commitment. <laughs> and, I hope uh, so. <laughs> and uh, uh, she knows an astonishing amount about opera and I'm an opera newbie. And so um, one of the things that Christina has been doing is directing me to, and my wife Cheryl to the best performances. Mm -hmm. uh, so Christina, would you, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, Francesca Zambello can't be here. Could you That's say right. a word about that? Yeah, Francesca says hello, and, and she's so sorry she can't come. They have been rehearsing this ring um, from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day since they loaded, since it arrived on April 12th. And, and in the way of things uh, theatrical, there's more to be done. And she uh, was going to send her assistant director, but they're uh, redoing some stuff on Siegfried all day today, so he couldn't come either. So uh, happily, I've been able to go to almost all of those rehearsals, or some portion of every one of them, for, um, for weeks and weeks, and she felt that I could kind of represent her vision for you. Um, fair enough. So she says hello, and I'll try to do the best I can with cueing you in on what, she, what she's up to in this extraordinary project. 
And Jean Shinoda Bolin uh, is a Jungian analyst, psychiatrist, author, and I love uh, the way you talk about taking your role as a messenger seriously. Could you say what you mean by your role as a messenger? Well, that's part of my more activist rather than introverted Jungian side. And it, it has to do with such titles as Urgent Message from Mother and The Man Circle and Like a Tree. It has to do with rallying individuals to make a difference. So I bring a message and hope that it's contagious. And essentially, uh, often when you get to a certain phase in your life and you realize how lucky you are, and that you're still here, your mind's still working, there is a looking around to give back, to make a difference, and I'm recruiting. So I bring the message that we're at a time when what you can do, because it's meaningful to you, whatever it is, to go do it. And together, we will make a difference. Mm -hmm. One of the things you do most beautifully, Jean, and let me just say, this, this book of Jean's, The Ring of Power, Symbols and Themes, Love versus Power in Wagner's Ring Cycle and in Us, a Jungian feminist perspective. But going to your activist side for a moment, one of the things that you do, I think, better than anybody else I've seen is talk about the relationship between individuation and activism. And I hadn't seen anybody quite do that that well before. Could you say what you mean by that relationship? Well, my colleagues, most of them, and including me, are more introverted than extroverted. So that individuation, uh, from Jung Jungian standpoint, seems to be so much about discovering what you, who you authentically are, which is individuation, of how your family dysfunctional as it probably was, influenced you, wounded you, and the healing of it has something to do with what you're here for, stuff like that. But there's a time and place for many people where it isn't, it is no longer just an inner journey, that there's something compelling and creative and fulfilling about making a difference in the world. And so at that point, this is activism. And it's activism at many different levels. It may be that you speak up at home for the first time and, and uh, let a family secret out to your kids uh, where you stop being oppressed in some way by the assumption that you're not supposed to have feelings or talk about them. And so activism is that you actually do step up and, and it's always an act of courage, a moment of truth. You've got a moment in which you can say something or nothing and silence is consent. If you know at a given moment that you could speak up or not. You've made a choice either to do it or not do it. So every time you actively take a step, that's activism. From that particular point, speaking to one other person in your life, to doing what I'm currently doing, which is to try to move uh, the countries of the UN to sponsor a fifth, uh, a fifth World Conference on Women not just for the conference sake, but to bring the feminine principle into balance with the masculine and do what the Dalai Lama suggested at the Vancouver Conference on Peace, that it's up to Western women to save humanity and the planet. So that's activism writ large. 
And, you know, I actually believe that that may well be true, that that's mm -hmm. not an overstatement, mm -hmm. that it really is up to women more than anyone else to save the earth. And, and the, the level of the crisis that we're in now is so astonishing. It just it becomes clearer every day how overwhelming uh, the environmental crisis, the economic crisis, the human crisis is. And it does seem that if this essentially patriarchal structure of, of power is not reversed, um, it's going to be very difficult to uh, see how life that has beauty for human beings, mm -hmm. at least, um, will be sustained. Well, we're right into the story of the ring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that the quest for power and what is done in order to have power, money, I mean, the greed and the fear that is motivating the whole story mm -hmm. is, what, is what we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. Christina, uh, Tell us a little bit about the ring cycle. What's the, what's the basic story of the ring cycle? <laughs> Do you have 17 hours? It's 18 and a half. It, well, that's with, the, that's with intermissions. <laughs> the ring is the story of the uh, renunciation of love because love didn't seem to work, and uh, the grasping for power because it looked like it might. And it's told uh, uh, as a war between two dysfunctional families. One is the dark family, the, the dark Albrecht family that lives underground, and one is the light Albrecht family that lives in the sky. And the head of the dark Albrecht family is Albrecht, and uh, Wotan, is the head of the White Albrecht family. And so we have essentially a three-generational tale that goes over in our rendition, a period of about 40 years, 50 years, um, where the men uh, battle each other for ultimate and complete control of everything that is. And the women, from the very beginning, are either not consulted or uh, collaborate as, as uh, uh, accept this uh, this paradigm, and um, one person uh, shows up, Brunhilde, who you know we think of with the horns and the big breasts. We we don't portray her as such. And Brunhilde is the uh, the daughter of the light Albrecht Wotan and Mother Earth, and. Um, Although the story has not often been told this way, we are telling the story as it was written. Uh, Brunhilde is the real hero of this, of this piece. And uh, she, uh, by betraying the narcissistic patriarchy that her father exemplifies, she stands up for love when he wants to murder it, when he has to murder it because his wife told him to. And his wife told him to because of a long story that you'll have to see or read about. Um, she stands up for love and uh, knowing that her father would have liked to and he casts her out of the God class and makes her become a human and she does what humans do. She falls in love 
she gives everything away to her husband, gladly, and accepts a diamond ring in exchange. And, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and when he betrays her, uh, she betrays him and, and colludes in his murder. And then when all is said and done, she looks around herself and she says, I see everything as it actually is. Peace, dear gods. Let it be peace. Mm. And she resets the button mm. and immolates the world. And in our ring, a very special impulse, a young girl comes at the very last moment with a sapling tree and plants it at the front of the stage, and the world begins again. So that's the story. What an extraordinary summary. <laughs> Amazing. It's very close to my heart. Jean, yes. in, in the introduction to uh, Ring of Power, you talk about this book, and you've written a, an extraordinary number of, of really remarkable books, but you talk about this book as an unplanned pregnancy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I was working on a book that uh, became uh, Crossing to Avalon when I had been invited to, to speak about the gods and goddesses in the ring cycle, and I had never seen the opera. I had thought that Wagner was a bit of a Nazi, and I was not particularly attracted to wanting to particularly delve into what attracted him, which was Wagner. Um, but my department of psychiatry, Langley Porter, was doing the, the symposium with the San Francisco Opera Company the first time that the whole ring cycle was brought to San Francisco. And so I was prevailed upon because I figured I'd written um, goddesses in every woman and gods in every man, and I figured I could speak about the archetypes for 45 minutes. Uh, and what I did was read the story. So I read the story before I heard any of the music, which I don't know if that's true of anybody. And I was fortunate enough to find at the Jungian Library a copy of the, the libretto that was fascinating. I've since read some kind of archaic language ones, which would not have been so thrilling. But this one gripped me. And so I, I knew the story. And then when I saw them, when I went and sat in the audience and watched this mythical, dysfunctional family depth psychology unfold over 18 and a half hours, mind you, Set to that music, it was like a a kind of a down, a tremendous download of of an interaction in my psyche. That was like a pregnancy. It was like suddenly, I I was holding what I knew from watching, feeling, sensing, and drawing from my practice and what I knew about people. And this was also a time when the recovery movement had just begun, and I had gotten into caring about the, the, the family dynamics of addictions and things, which was not particularly Jungian. So the, 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 to, to watch on stage this whole story unfolding and it bringing together Jungian recovery and like being given a huge archetypal collective dream 
to think about, feel about. And so, yeah, I got into uh, telling the story from how I saw it and then amplifying it. I mean, this is how we work with dreams. You amplify the symbols that are in the dream. And this was like an amazing dream. That's an amazing dream. And I continue to... I mean, one of the things about the word archetype is if it's archetypal, we all resonate to it because it's in our, our psyches to resonate with something that is so humanly true. And so we recognize the truth of it even when it's not interpreted. I mean, if you have a huge dream that you wake up from in the morning and you can hardly wait to tell somebody about your dream, it could be that you, you, don't, you don't interpret it at all. Probably unlikely in this group, but... <laughs> But mere mortals do that. Kids do that. They have enormous dreams, and it's like it was an event, and they want to share it. And without even interpreting it, they, they, there's something about how it resonates. And that's exactly what this, I'm sure, why Wagner's uh, ring cycle gets played over and over again. And my sense of when I looked at the audience of, of who came, I saw Zygmunds and... Uh, I saw, you know, there was, there were, fa- I mean, first of all, opera's expensive. You have to be sort of a Votan family in order to go to see the, the opera. Right? <laughs> you know? And then you immediately are in the dysfunctional family where power over and money is part of what your story is you about. You should have tried to raise money for it. <laughs> Imagine talking to the Wotans about uh, funding something like this. Well, <laughs> Brunhilde, like you seem to be doing it. Right. But, you know, can I respond a little bit to this? Because it, it was your book that, um, that really got me into this project of, of helping uh, this ring come to, uh, come to life. And there's something that you did that I would recommend to anyone who goes to uh, a ring cycle. You said these characters are all inside of you. Mm-hmm. Now that's quite a discovery because I don't want to be Albert. I don't want to be Hagen, his miserable rape child, whose whose job is one and only mission in life is to steal power from you know from someone. I don't want to be that person. But there are that community, that entire community is in me. There are certain archetypes that I identify with more than others. But I think that is, uh, that is a real gift that you've given the, uh, the Ring audiences. We actually give out uh, Jean's book to uh, folks who we want to get excited about this project. And to a one, they're, they're riveted by it because it does bring the entire, it, it makes this week of opera going a transformative experience. Uh, and so you don't even notice the time goes by. It's, you sort of want more when it's all done. Yeah, you know, I, I must say that, as I said, I'm a newbie to opera, and uh, I, uh, I think that uh, you began directing me to the right operas after I'd seen two before, mm-hmm. I, before we began talking about opera. But I must say, I can't imagine uh, going to the ring cycle without having read this book, having read it. I just think it's, it's, so, um, it's so persuasive, uh, Jean, what you say. Now, in... Early in the book, uh, you you point out, of course, that, that Hitler was a great devotee of the mm-hmm. ring cycle. Um, and you also um, compare um, the fascination of opera lovers with the ring cycle 
two followers of the Grateful Dead, that you know, the Deadheads as they are now. Uh, actually, several of the Grateful Dead members were ringheads, as yeah. they're called. Ring nuts. And, uh, ring nuts. Ringheads. Ring, ring no, nuts. No, but ring also, nuts. But, no, but from the Deadheads to, to the, the ringheads. Ring right. I got yeah. it. Okay. Ring yeah. nuts and Deadheads. But so here we have something that exercised extraordinary power, and in fact, uh, many people, many Jewish people specifically, but many people to this day are deeply suspicious of Wagner, as they are of Jung, uh, because of the anti-Semitic histories and overtones of both Jung and Wagner. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I'd, I'd just like to ask you to say a little more about what you think the incredible power of this is that has made the ring cycle the sort of pinnacle of operatic fascination and dedication? Well, the characters, the story, the music, mm -hmm. put them together, it, it's amazing. Um, the anti-Semitic element was often shown in how Albrecht, uh, the dwarf who lived in the underground, was portrayed. Mm -hmm. Now, what amazes me about Wagner's story is that the psychology of how people in the cast turned out to be how they are made sense to me. So here we have Albrecht, who's, who, in, in the very beginning, um, he's like that kid that is the shadow in everybody who, who, who wasn't one of the popular people. Especially when you were, say, a young adolescent boy and you, you uh, were taken by the attractive girls in high school. And they led you on and made you appear to be just a fool. And so if you start to look at the beginning, when Albrecht is underwater and there are these three Rhine maidens who are singing and happy and really attractive and... and um, and they're like cold fish, essentially. This is what an archetype is like. It's, it's when the feminine is unrelated to compassion and feeling, mm -hmm. when she's aware of the power she has to mesmerize and draw attracted, uh, be, well, draw Albrecht to them. And then he gets taken. He gets, and they make fun of her, they, him. They ridicule, they, 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 they make him look utterly ridiculous, and then the the light shows on the on the gold and the on the Rhine, and it's beautiful. And the, the Rhine maidens now just swim around it and and sing about it, and 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 Albrecht looks at it and wonders about it, and they assume that they can tell him what it really is, and that of course they've so dismissed him that what is he going to do with this information? And it's the essential story that out of this Rheingold, a ring could be created with which the bearer could rule the world. But the bearer would have to renounce love forever. And who would ever do that? Well, Albrecht, who had never known love and who now was, was feeling utterly impotent, he would renounce love because he never knew it. And somebody who is viewed as a dwarf, as a nothing, 
as a dark nobody. Um, that's the archetype of the rejected part of all of us who somewhere along the line felt like an Albrecht. And fortunately, we have the other members of the cast in <laughs> us, you know, and, and we don't just have an Albrecht. But he carries that, that his readiness to give up love, which he never has experienced anyway, for power. And that is the choice, either love. If you grasp power, then you do give up love. You impose your power over in your relationships with your significant others. And you never know whether they love you for yourself, because you never give them a chance. You dominate them. You get obedience from them. And that's what authoritarian power is like. Mm. So let me ask you the really difficult question, similar to the one I asked Christina, asking her to summarize the, the ring cycle. How would you describe the, the set of dynamics that you found in the ring cycle? Um, you know, in other words, if you, if you give us a kind of an overview of what the trajectory of your perception of those dynamics are. Well, as soon as the, well, I also compared it to the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, Frodo and the, the Ring of Power with which you have to return it to its origins or men will be fighting over its possession and its wish to do dominate. So overall, in the bigger picture, it, it is about just that, that as soon as there is the potential destructive power to rule everybody else, Will you use it or will you not? And what is the cost? In, in this three-generation family, it's clear that if you have an authoritarian father like Votan and his wish that his sons live out that part that he was not able to do himself and they are supposed to live out his unfulfilled expectations of himself, then he's... that son is abandoned, that child, any boy or girl, any child that is not raised and loved for themselves with their own particular talents and fate, and their own personal myth, and you're supposed to live out someone else's idea, someone else's script for your life, then you are an abandoned child, as was every single, ch every single child in this story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that. So it's about, I mean, essentially I, I put it down to about the authoritarian father, the abandoned child, and the disempowered feminine. That was the overall summary. That what is missing throughout the whole story, but comes in at the end as a new hope for the world, is that the feminine in the men and the feminine characters in the story are all disempowered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's so much like culture. You talk about the relationship of what the authoritarian father does that leads to addiction and many other uh, unhappy endings in the children of such a father. Could you describe what you mean by that? Well, addictions are always a substitute for something that is essential to your growth and your self-esteem and your sense of, of, 
being all right with the world. And that's essentially the ability to, to love and be loved and to live out an authentic life. And if you're cast in a different role and you have to numb your feelings, which is what you use every addiction for, whether it's workaholism or alcohol, essentially it's to numb your truth about how you really feel. And then you seek whatever it is that uh, is supposed to fulfill you. And in, in this culture of power, like the, the, the people that, that have driven this uh, recession that we're in, these, these people that had millions and millions already who had to have more and more and more and didn't care at all what happened to other people on there while they grasped at it. So they had these huge amounts of money that they were that they now had, but you can bet that it didn't satisfy an essential human need. Mm -hmm. And this is this was the story in the ring that the addictive addiction to power is a substitution mm -hmm. for a genuine and true life. Mm -hmm. Christina, you've you've thought about this question of how we relate to things outside ourselves, mm -hmm. and as somebody who, who bring as an extraordinary, actually, uh, Hindu astrologer who mm -hmm. I, I have consulted uh, <laughs> with gratitude. Uh, but from your perspective, as someone with a Hindu point of view, as an astrologer, as someone who's thought about this, what about this relationship of, of addiction and the outer world to uh, our authentic self? I think you said it very well. Um, you know, in, in Hinduism, we don't recognize that there's anything separate from anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the world is nothing but everything. Mm -hmm. It's an ordered consciousness. You know, we, we're, we're, we seem to be sitting here, but we're really traveling a thousand miles an hour as the mm -hmm. earth spins on its axis. Mm -hmm. And you know the the order of things is so beyond human comprehension. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is utterly in, interconnected with everything else, mm -hmm. and and so they're really they're, what what emerges is a sense of duty or dharma we call it uh, that one uh, one has a responsibility in the roles that one has and that keeps one connected with the fullness that is. You know, if, if husbands would act as husbands, mm -hmm. if wives would act as wives, mm -hmm. there would be no need for a conversation about, I have this right, or, I, or you abuse me in that way. Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the ways that the culture mm -hmm. sees things, is that trees are trees, they mm -hmm. do what trees do. Mm -hmm. Parents are parents, they do what parents do. And uh, you know that's that's the way things are. But it, but somewhere in Western culture, uh, a notion arose, arose that there's something separate, mm -hmm. that there's something outside of me. In Hinduism, we consider it the uh, you know the drives, the, the likes and the dislikes. I like this, so I want more of it, mm -hmm. and that's just a, a consequence of the ignorance of what really is, which is. You're given everything. You're given your body. You're given your food. You're given your clothing. You know, someone. You know, someone provided everything that we have here. It wasn't me. It wasn't you. Uh, well, our the only rightful stance we have is thank you. How can I help? Which is, you know, what Hanuman says when things fall apart. But, 
but that's not the Western paradigm. The Western paradigm is man is separate from nature. Uh, man is uh, wanting. Well, I mean, we all experience ourselves as wanting, but the answer in the Western paradigm has been, you know, conquer. Go get it. And that's very much the story of the ring. If, if I go get it, I'll have it. And I don't know anybody who's ever gotten what they thought they wanted, but how long did you like it? You know, I mean, that's <laughs> at the end of the day. And that is the addict's conundrum, you know. I think I, think I need another glass of wine. And then I have it. Well, then maybe I need another one. And then I have it. Then maybe I need another one. And then I'm blacked out. And now, you know, all hell breaks loose. So, I mean, it's, it is... Uh, it's, a, it's the, the dragon chasing its tail. You cannot get enough when you think that you are separate. That if you think that there's something outside that will fix things, you know, God help you. I mean, and that's, and, you know, it, it actually literally is part of the storyline in the ring. But, you know, when um, in Gadadamarang, when the, 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 the younger generation of Albrecht's family decides they're going to get the ring, they, they give Siegfried a drink and, you know, give him a drug. And he forgets that he's married to Brunhilde and they, and, uh, and two of the cast of characters need to be married in order to be happy. And so the female marries Siegfried and the male uh, rapes Brunhilde and becomes her husband. And they're supposed to be happy now, only of course they're not. Mm. But, I mean, he, you know, he tells the story. Mm. Jean, this relationship of, of power and love. I, I was up, woke up in the middle of the night last night and, and was rereading um, this and I, I realized the power of this story for me personally. Um, and I, I remember uh, when I was in college, I actually wrote a poem that I won't embarrass myself or you by repeating, but it's stayed with me ever since. But it was... Um, it started uh, with this question of, you know, must I give up love to act, uh, is to feel what you exact, mm -hmm. you know. And I have wrestled with this relationship between love and action uh, all of my life, actually. Um, and I think, um, so in this book, you cast it as if someone is not adequately loved, they reach for, for power. But I guess what I didn't find for myself in that description is um, what Rollo May talks about as love and will, what Freud talked about as love and work, um, that it seems to me that, and I think you explore this elsewhere, but that there's, there's more than the fundamental principle of love in life. There's also uh, acts, that there's also service to the world, there's also whatever form. It may not be the search for power, but it may be the search for significance or service or something like that. And it seems to me there may be an intrinsic challenge about acting and keeping ourselves completely open to love and compassion at the same time. That it is an extraordinary skill to both act in the most powerful ways that you can, let's say on behalf of saving the planet, and at the same time stay completely compassionate and loving. And um, in the book, it seemed to me framed as love versus power 
but not so much addressing the question that I've struggled with of love and will or love and action. I wondered if you could talk about that. A couple of comments. One, this story, yeah. the choice was with every character to be motivated by power was what most of them were. Right. And they gave up love and authenticity for right. that. So in this story, it mm. was so much either or. Right. In us, the, it's, it's the continuum of love is what motivates action. Mm -hmm. If you are who you came into the world to be with your experiences that cause you to be wounded and therefore, uh, or in your talents that, that you are kind of responsible maybe for utilizing, you know that when you are able to use your talents and are able to act effectively in the world, that there's a, there's a joy, there's a love of, of it for its own sake, a creativity. Rollo May, I, I, in his book, Courage to Create, he talked about that when you create, there's a joy. When someone else appreciates it, there's satisfaction, but the creativity itself, which is an expression of your own essence, and your talents, and your discipline, and all that goes into being able to do something well. It's like you're the instrument through which something happens that is the, in which the self, or with the divine energy, or the, the whole purpose that we came here. I mean, I think of ourselves as being essentially um, souls that came into this world Therefore, spiritual beings on a human path, that we came into this world for a short period of time to be here to do something, to learn something, to love something, and this is our own story. So that I don't see in our lives, uh, I can see motivation either being uh, love connected to self, or which is ego the sense of I am a doing being in this world, if it's motivated by the largest self, which is a generic kind of Esperanto that Jung uses to describe all of the, the great mystery, the Tao, God, Goddess, all of it, that if ego is, in, is infused and in touch with that greater energy, that there's a, there's a sense of well-being if ego is continually looking, how am I doing relative to other people? Do I have more alpha than you? Do I have more money than you? Am I got more fame than you? And I'm always measuring, 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 and I'm always feeling like I've got to get more. Then it's ego in relationship to persona, mm -hmm. and that's depleting. It always takes energy to, to, to live up to the persona and the expectations that other people have on who you were supposed to be when it's not truly who you are. So I think that what motivates us uh, in power includes being accepted by one's family. Or, I mean, it, it's, it's the stuff that, that if we can't feel that we're just loved for who we are, we can't just be who we are, then what do we settle for? And that's why it's... It's, so if you are acting from a principle of who you are, using your talents, it is actually an expression of the love energy, the self energy that is inside. It isn't an either or thing. Mm -hmm.
And persona does come into it. Our lives aren't that simple either, that we live in a world where our personas do matter, so we do have to pay some attention to that. Otherwise, you're not able to do in the world what it is that you would like to do. You've got to make some accommodations, but do you, what, but it's a selling of soul or not mm-hmm. in, in many ways. What about, I just want to push this question a little further because I think, um, I mean, I think I see it more clearly in boys, but also, as you mentioned, in, in women, women who use the power of attraction because they have it, but mm-hmm. with no real compassion for mm-hmm. what they're going to mm-hmm. do with the people that are attracted to them. But you certainly see it in, in boys, in young boys, uh, for whom the feeling part is often suppressed. And I'm not at all sure it's because they weren't loved enough. I, I just wonder if it isn't almost... I wonder if there isn't an innate tension in the human species um, between uh, love and will, or whatever you want to call it, because I don't see the absence of love just as a reflection of not having been loved enough. It seems to me there's a seems to me there's an innate tension there. Well, an urgent message from Mother. I was describing how how it is to be a boy. Mm-hmm that you can be, what's really interesting from being a mother is to recognize that little boys are often exceedingly sensitive to their mothers and have feelings and are expressive and cry and, and, and then what? And then, then they get acculturated. And I think the effect of, of, of the world on little boys, bigger boys, fathers, uh, what it's like to be aware that you are either part of the in-group on the playground or you're going to be uh, extruded and picked upon. Mm-hmm. The bullying that goes on uh, by people who really weren't loved, I think, mm-hmm. has ramifications that you, you, you need as a person to adapt to who you are what your family expected, and, and what you have to accommodate to to make your way in the world. And I think the price on little boys is often to suppress their feeling side. Mm. And then if they get caught up more and more on, on that, it gets to be more and more done so that the current brain studies on heterosexual men is that their brains are asymmetrical because they're not using their right brain, which is feeling and music and art and the capacity to hold many different things. So that, that women have been expected to now, especially since the women's movement, to not only be educated but to work and to develop the left brain. And then we have the socialization that actually allows us to be feeling people a lot longer than boys are. So I'm wondering, what would it like, would be like to be in a culture in which both aspects of humankind were encouraged in both little boys and little girls? Mm-hmm. Which is a great question. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you reflected on this, Christina, any piece of this that speaks to you? What can I talk about in terms of the ring? Mm. There's a character um, that I'm very excited about in our particular ring. It's a new singer, uh, new to this role, this a fellow. 
who's uh, been very successful in the Italian repertoire, but it's his first big German role. And he's playing Sigmund. And I watched him do it last night. And uh, Sigmund is a, a boy who had a twin sister and, um, and a mom and a dad. His dad was Wotan, mom, earthly mom. And as far as we know, it was a loving situation. Uh, but he and his father are off being, doing what boys do, you know, hunting and stuff. And they come back. The mother's been murdered and the sister's been abducted. And raped and... Yeah, and, yes, badly, and we go badly on. Badly treated. Yeah. And, and, we, and, and the, actually, the Valkyra, uh, the, the opera that he shows up in, is we, we, we see him in the beginning running for his life. Sort of as a man who's walked the aggressive path with the best of all fathers, unable to his, to his, no, to his point of view, Gene, to his point of view, he and his dad were out, you know, tearing it up. And, you know, and oh my goodness, I lost my sister and my, and my, and my mother. And he encounters his other half which is Zieglinda. And he promptly falls in love. And, you know, so you could say that brother falls in love with sister, not such a good thing. But what really happens is at his nadir, at his bottom, all this running around, searching for God knows what, he encounters this uh, abused woman who is his sister. She, she had been abducted by this monstrous fellow and had been his uh, wife and object for however long. And the two of them need each other. They, they, there's a point where they discover a heart connection that defies what we know. You, you know brothers and sisters aren't supposed to fall in love, right? People aren't supposed to leave their, 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 uh, their spouses, and yet they fall in love and she leaves her spouse. And there's, this guy is, has such a beautiful tone to his singing. I mean, it's, it's one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. This is a role that Placido Domingo has made very famous. And Brandon sings it as beautifully as it could possibly be sung. And you fall in love with him. And it is his love for the feminine half of him that he has lost that the... The, the ways of the world have taken from him mm -hmm. that causes his murder. In fact, it's this love that, that Wotan wants to support until his wife says, you can't because it's incest and it's adultery. You have to kill him in, in this way. And, and, and eventually this happens and it sets up the whole story. But I, I do, I mean, I've read the same brain, brain research in the, the uh, Lynn Brinzadine's books, mm -hmm. the, the male and the female brain. And, you know, I don't think it's an either-or formula. No, certainly not. I, I think there, uh, in, in Hinduism we have Shiva and Shakti, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I think there's action and there's compassion. There's, mm -hmm. the, there's the field mm -hmm. and then there's that which grows. Mm -hmm. And to me, we could even consider this question because we're so far out of balance. Mm -hmm. We are Zygmunt running through the forest of life, 
he says, he says, I am not joy, I am not free, I am Mr. Woeful. Do you and know why he is, though, in a patriarchal society? That poor man exactly. was a feeling-type man, and he kept getting into trouble. That's, well, that's my point, though, Jean. That's exactly my point. But I think that, that for us as a modern audience, mm -hmm. Sigmund is, is the beginning of, a, of an impulse of hope. Because in him, as a feeling-type man, or as a man whose other half, his feminine side, had been split away from him, he is yearning for reconnection with that. And his collapse is, is our collapse. It, it, it's, it, it's this, you know, how much more can we conquer? How much more can we fight? How much more can we cut down? And at some point you say, I am neither free nor joyful. I am nothing but woe. And that's his exact line. And it is the recognition of the lost feminine that everybody has. And I think that, that um, out-of-balance brain that Lynn talks about in, in the, uh, the male brain is very much to the point. And you know, certainly women suffer differently, in, differently in a, at an unspeakable level in this culture. But the, the dark, dirty secret is that men suffer as well. And, and Sigmund really represents the suffering he of does. the man who didn't go along with the guys. Yeah. And uh, every single thing he got into difficulty with, it's like his instinct to be compassionate did him in over and over and over again. In, in fact, he has a line, everything I loved, everyone else hated. Yeah. Everyone that I, everything that I hated, everybody else loved. I, I fit in nowhere. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's, I think that the question comes up as a, as a uh, contrast just speaks to the mess that we're in. There's also the twin yeah. connection. Have you ever, uh, I was looking at the New York Times with all the weddings and they have pictures of all these young people marrying each other and if you look at it, so many of them look, look like alike. twins. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look alike. And, and it is like in the first part of, of life, you kind of seek your other half. Absolutely. And then the point is to, to take it back and to keep growing into a whole person. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little about the music. Hmm. Yours, mine, <laughs> your department. But I mean, I was reading about the music and um, this is a historically important piece of music. It, it, did all kinds of new mm. things. Uh, Wagner invented the Wagner tuba or something yeah, because there was a, he saw an absence of, he was using a very large orchestra. He made the, the piece go straight through each uh, segment nonstop. <coughs> he was, it was a step toward uh, contemporary music. And talk a little bit about the, just the, the significance of the music in the ring. Well, I'm hardly a musicologist, and, okay. and so we really need Kip Krana here to give mm -hmm. a, a right. so I'm speaking opinion, not, um, not mm -hmm. scholarship. I'll tell you what gets me about the music. Yeah. Let's, go, let's do, go from there. Um, Wagner uh, loved Beethoven and um, was very taken by the way Beethoven would use a theme, and it would show up in various parts of Beethoven's longer pieces kind of turned around and to, to evoke different things. 
And at, up until that point, opera was kind of constructed around, primarily around uh, a recit, a, a, a statement, a, 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 something that sets a scene, and then a song, an aria. And the aria's done, everybody claps, and then we go on to the next one. And, it tell, and that's how the stories were made. Wagner thought it would be great to have the orchestra be one of the characters. And actually, almost like in a Greek play, the chorus, telling you what's happening that, that, the, that the, the singers may not even know is happening. And the way he got at this is he uh, constructed these things called leitmotifs. And there are, I guess, over a hundred of them. I couldn't, couldn't begin to tell you. I do have a wonderful libretto that tells me what they are when they come, and that's sort of fun, but they're there. And Just leitmotifs being pieces that represent different characters. It's a, maybe a five-bar, five-measure theme that is assigned to a particular impulse or person I or see. notion. So they have the leitmotif of Genesis, which begins with the note E-flat, which uh, in, in the diatonic scale, every note has a character, every, every, uh, every scale has a character. And E-flat is supposedly, I don't know why, but it's supposedly one of the deep spiritual scales. Oh, but, it, but it has to do with it actually resonating at some, at some cellular deep level. Le yeah. deep level. So the whole piece, the whole 17-hour piece begins with the, um, the string basses playing about eight bars of E-flat just by itself. And then, so the horns begin to play that note on top of it. And then other instruments come in and a motive, a, 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 uh, a recognizable tone is created. And likewise, there's one for each of the characters. And so, uh, so for instance, um, when uh, uh, Brunhilde uh, says to um, uh, Wotan at the end of um, Die Valkyrie, where this is sort of the, the heartbreak moment between them when they split up forever, where, where he casts her out of heaven because she told the truth. She says to him, uh, a hero will emerge who will uh, satisfy your desires. And what we hear is the first of Siegfried's motif, or pretty much the first. And so we know, we know that it's Siegfried. Wotan doesn't, but we know that. And so he did this, okay, these, these musical threads, and they're simple in the beginning, and then they're more complex, and they weave amongst themselves. And as you're listening, you get, you get sort of in this uh, musical soup that uh, whether you remember it specifically or not, in your heart, you remember where you've been. Mm. And some of the looming starts to go. And there's, a, there's this beautiful uh, motif about giving up love for power. And it, it shows up in each one of the operas. And different people sing it for different effect. And it's, it's quite remarkable. So the orchestra, and the orchestra is also a, what they call a composed through piece. We had a little problem the other night in, uh, in Das Rheingold. Das Rheingold runs two and a half hours without intermission. It's the longest you have to sit in the Wagner ring, and it's, that's, that's the whole piece, two and a half hours. And so during scene changes, when the curtain's down, um, the, the orchestra's still playing. 
but people wanted to clap. Mm -hmm. We were saying, no, don't clap, don't clap. <laughs> Why don't they flash it up on <laughs> that little well, thing? You don't know, clap, some of us have actually thought, maybe we should say that. <laughs> uh, turn off your phones and don't clap in between scenes. But, um, <laughs> but it, you know, at least it meant that they were liking the show. But, yeah. um, but, but yes, the, this music created the orchestra as a character in the storytelling. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So we're going to open it up for others to ask questions and comments, but um, Jean, I want to come back to this central theme of your work and um, um, essentially seeing yourself as a messenger uh, regarding the vital importance of the role of the feminine in saving the earth and uh, co-creating a post-patriarchal world. Um, and as I said at the start, that actually strikes me as true. Mm -hmm. um, the problem that I have is that when I look around at what is actually going on, climate change, toxic chemicals, genetically modified organisms, war, nanotechnology, just all the ways in which we are eroding and destroying the very fabric of life. And the old song, uh, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water but the fire next time. And the imagery in the ring of the fire at the end, uh, which of course was perfectly what happened with Hitler and his death and the fire at the okay. end. And I wonder how much will be left uh, for a post-patriarchal feminist uh, society to work with. I mean, I, I guess I just wonder, it literally <coughs> happened to me, I was with some friends who study what's the environment and what's happening in health. Uh, last week, and I said to them, if we allowed ourselves to imagine that despite all of our bravest efforts, this is going down. Life as we know it is going down. If we allowed ourselves, instead of concentrating on our brave efforts to do everything we can to save things, to fully acknowledge the time in which we're living mm -hmm. and the real possibility perhaps even the probability that life as we know it is going down, then I said, if we fully acknowledge that, how would that change how we are and what we seek to do in this life, in this world? Well, I think, for one thing, that in our lifetime, the decision will be in as to whether we go into destructive mode or not, because we also have an evolutionary possibility that is very much in the air as well. Uh, capacity to communicate right. with everybody at one time right. now through the internet and things like that. The, uh, the fact that ideas spread through the collective consciousness and unconsciousness amazingly, and that it's contagious. The ideas go viral, so that it's possible that we are in this time when it could go in either direction. And I am this optimist who feels that all of us are here at this time 
with the educational, occupational, resourcefulness, medical advances that make us, as the women of this post-women's movement time, in numbers and in capacity to make a difference as never existed on this planet exactly. before, that I truly think that we could be the difference if each of us takes on whatever it is. So that's the message, the overall message. The message uh, to individuals is that something comes along and you have that space to respond and it has your name on it. If it's meaningful to you personally, if it's going to be fun in the sense that it uses you <laughs> and you travel doing it with people who share your values and that overall the motivation is love. And if you say yes to that and you contribute your piece to it and if enough of us do that, then it is tilt time. Okay, we are in what's called a liminal period. We're in the threshold. When you're in a liminal place, it's like it's named for the word threshold. It's like the like the the doorway between the past and the future. What we do in the doorway determines the room that we're going to move into next. And in the ring, it is a character of Brunhilde who becomes a whole person. That she learns that she was an archetype before, as people are when they identify with an archetype. They are rather one-sided. Well, she was as a Valkyrie. And then she has the experience with Siegfried, and she becomes a mortal woman who falls in love and then is terribly betrayed, humiliated. She gets into the shadow side that wants to kill him, and she feels so demolished herself that she gives away the information that results in his death. So, I mean, she, she has gone from this all-giving, loving woman, which lots of women identify with during a certain period of their lives, and then when they're betrayed, their shadow side comes in, and so she knows the shadow. And then she stands over uh, Siegfried's dead body, and she acknowledges everything. Uh, all the love, all the hatred, all the acts, and she, just, she has an insight then about what it is she needs to do, which has to do with taking that ring and getting it back to where it came from, into, the, into nature. Because I think this is also a story about what we have done when we have stripped from nature the power to destroy the world, which is nuclear power. So she does, she has this insight, which I think we could use as, a, as humanity, that we are capable. It's not bad guy, everybody's a bad guy, and we're good guys at all. That we have shadow, they have shadow, and we're in this time together, okay? So the message, your message, I mean, that's one of the messages, and, and, and um, I may have lost track of your question. <laughs> we're just carrying on. <laughs> So, first of all, let's just open this up now. Now, let me ask you two things. One is, um, stand up, please say your name, and speak clearly, and keep the com comments or questions zen brief, so that we can hear from as many people as possible. So, I, I could have asked you to write on cards, which would have 
controlled it, but I love real interaction. So if you will collaborate, keep the questions or comments brief, stand up and say your name and speak loudly. That will help. Yes, please. translate it, we, we have a moment where she and, she and Gutruna and the Rhine maidens are sitting together with Siegfried's corpse. And she says, I have claimed my inheritance, namely that she's, that, that, that she has the ring that, that Siegfried has. Um, I'm taking it to this, fun to this fire where it will be purified and there, it will, then, there you will collect it. But it's, it needs, it, yeah, she, well, because it needs to be purified. The idea is that it is, it still has the curse, remember. It still has um, Albrecht's curse that whoever wears this ring renounces love and will die. So she, she is taking that curse and purifying it in the fire and telling the gals that, that that's where you will find it and that's where it's purified and can be restored. Yes, right there. You, you had your hand up? Good. Oh, okay. Yes? I was wondering... Um, Could you say uh, your name? Uh, Althea Wallace. Um, I was wondering the degree to which it really serves uh, choosing to polarize uh, these, uh, the will to power versus the will to nurture as really being um, so essentially masculine versus feminine. And if we really do want to um, get everybody behind you know, the cause of nurturing rather than simply acquisitiveness, wouldn't it serve more to say, well, this is simply nurturing versus will to, you know, it, does it have to be masculine versus feminine? I just see that as being tremendously polarized. Well, it, partly it's language and partly it's role, but basically it is the, what's in all of us. And so masculine or feminine power, uh, not power, there's power over, the French apparently have two words for power. One. One is power over and the other is uh, agency, the ability to do something, you know? And so the ability to do something with your energy and the, the ability to love and nurture are what's in all of us. And if we have the opportunity to develop both, there's a sense of wholeness within us. Now, life is not that simple often, though. There's the the tension between, between these poles within us that come up. That's what you raised, agency. You were really talking about agency versus yeah. love. Overlordship. Right. And, and so the choices come and you feel the tension between the two. And the, the individuation choice is that you have to take responsibility for each time what you decide to do. In the story of the ring cycle, Almost everybody except Brunhilde at the end 
did not decide for themselves, but had been pre-programmed as to what their choices. They were, they didn't really have a choice. They were created in order to yeah. gain the power for light outbreak or dark outbreak. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just want to say. Could you say your name? Sure, my name's Andre. I just want to add a comment to that. Uh, it is a, a, a male's compassion that um, inspires the female hero to um, be an activist. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a perfect example as to why um, that polarity that you, you mentioned, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's uh, it, it's, I, I believe in an egalitarian society because both uh, a male or a female can choose compassion, love and compassion over you know. mm -hmm. Thank you. Other comments? Yes. Um, my name is Jean. Um, I got to see Go to Denver last Sunday, so I don't know if it's fair to ask this for people who are yet to see it, but your production, well, you did mention the um, way that this production ends, which was so moving. I, I, I was surprised by my emotional reaction to it. And I mean, obviously it was clearly intentional that only women were on stage at the end and leading up to those last five or ten minutes or so. Yeah, there is a moment when the gents do join them. Um, oh, maybe I yeah. just didn't notice. Yeah, um, okay. uh, but it, this, this uh, reading of the ring is very um, informed by Francesca's vision that the, um, that, that the real hero of the story is Brunhilde. So my question is, um, what kind of response thus far have you had from critics or audience regarding uh, this production's uh, well, 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 we haven't made a big point of it, um, to be perfectly honest. We've, um, uh, the, our ring is also a ring that talks about the despoilation of the environment, and that it, you, you can't miss it in how we present the story. And um, I don't think anybody felt this was the right time or place, or even correct, probably, to polarize. I, I liked your question a lot, uh, because it's too easy to go into a, a male-female argument, which is just the same patriarchal, who's right, who's wrong kind of thing. We don't want to go there. So I, I would say that the impulse is more subtle. Um, but. You know, Francesca had the right to pick who she wanted to cross that stage with the tree, and she chose a little girl. And I think that we ought, there's, I was behind, I was backstage with one of the supers, and we were sobbing together, and there's a young man and myself, and we're sobbing. And I said to him, what is it? Why can't we stop crying after seeing this? And I'd seen it six times already, so it wasn't my first. And he was in it, so it wasn't his first either. <laughs> and he said, it's our hope. It is our hope. And I think one does have uh, an archetypical response to the innocence of a little girl that, um, uh, that is neither male nor female. We can't call it, it's not a gender issue. It's just, it's just something that touches your heart. Well, can I just make a quick follow-up? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I guess I'm referring back to the Dalai Lama comment about mm -hmm. women being the hope. I mean, for, to, I, not as a polarizing thing, but as a, a way, 
of a perhaps unexplored or underexplored solution. Not, not male. Well, we were talking about this at lunch a little bit and about Brunhilde's sleep. And, you know, I think it's not about putting women, it's not about so much about putting women more in front, although there needs to be some of that, I suppose. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a good conversation. But it's about waking up the feminine inside of us. It is Brunhilde's sleep that's the problem. It's our, um, our uh, it, it's our putting away our own love and care, our own gratitude, our own impulse to serve. That's the problem. And men and women have it equally. And so and I think that's why your book is so powerful, is, is and, Brunhilde's uh, and everything. Yeah, let me just add a point to that, because and then I want to hear what you're about mm -hmm. to say, Jean. But um, you talk about, in the book, how the Wotans of this world rarely show up in your office for therapy. But when they, <laughs> when they when they do show up, They're a mess. it's because some deep wound, an illness or the loss of a relationship or something else, has transformed them. And they realize that what they devoted themselves to, money or power or whatever it was, is empty. And, that, um, and they go, they, they become wanderers in your, world, in your world, in quest for love. And so, I, and we know in the Cancer Help Program, having done 160 week-long retreats over the last 26 years, that we see a lot of these wanderers, mm -hmm. men and women, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, who were people who were very professionally identified, and then this great wounding takes place, and they wonder what really matters, and it's rarely more power, more, you know, okay. money, it really Doesn't is work. about discovering the source of self and love. And um, what were you going to, to add to that? Well, I give a lot of credit to the women's movement changing life and possibilities for both men and women. Yeah. Okay. So we have, with Brunhilde, an Athena woman. And those are the kind of women that get to be successful in corporations and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And the development of compassion does often come later. And here we have her seeing Sigmund unwilling to take a power position if he has to give up his sister who has been so vulnerable and so suffering. And really, she's having all the symptoms of, of post-traumatic stress syndrome in this, in this opera. I mean, she is remembering what happened that she repressed. And then she, she thinks about her hero and feels so ashamed as women who have been raped and repress it and remember. I mean, it's so poignant. And he gets it, that, that she has suffered. And she, he is not going to leave her unprotected, even if he is offered Valhalla and the whatevers, whatevers. He would rather not go there. Mm -hmm. And here Brunhilde is amazed because this was the reward that every red-blooded male should want. Mm -hmm. And he would rather stay on this earth to look after uh, Zieglinda. And this is what moves her. So, and I see this in my current life where, where uh, adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that it is the man who has 
thanks to the women's movement in part, and the woman thanks to the women's movement, she is the, on the career track. He was actually able to be a feeling type person, which Zygmunt was not. Because if you take that they're givens, that archetypes are archetypes, psychological types are psychological types, and you come into the world and whatever your typology is, the culture and the family either allows it to be or makes you feel badly or suppresses it. So since the women's movement, a lot of the little guys have grown up to be men who developed the fact that they were feeling type men to begin with. And when they find their Brunhildes, it is not unusual to have the Brunhildes learn from the feeling type men something of their own vulnerability and things like that. So Brunhilde, as a, as a, it, 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 it's like how do you develop the other half that you were missing mm -hmm. uh, through relationship, through love, is what mm -hmm. happens to all of these people who develop that in life or in this opera. Mm -hmm. Thank you. A few more questions. You, I'm going to try to get to people who haven't spoken. Yes. The new what? The new into consideration that there is the, the human element and there's the economic element and what is the cost? I mean, one of the things is Fricka brings up, uh, Wotan is, is just waxing about, look at Valhalla, look, you know, and he's promised Freya, the, the symbol of youth and love, in, you know, in payment for, for Valhalla. Well, that, that willingness to give up uh, when the people that make the big decisions are without the feminine principle, we are in real trouble. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we spend the budget? Do we, do we go from putting all our money into armaments and therefore we cut all our social programs? I mean, there's something about holding economically uh, both the general rules of economics, which is impersonal, and how we, I mean, this is why we in the United States developed a graduated income tax, so that we could do both. You know, I don't think it's impossible if... <laughs> but but there, are, there are companies out there that are walking that walk. I mean, Paul Hawken, Paul Hawken is a great champion for this sort of thing. There's actually a book written by a rabbi. What? Let's take just a few more questions, and then Jean uh, uh, is going to sign books downstairs. I understand that uh, because of distribution 
things that there are actually very few There copies. was one. <laughs> one copy of The Ring of Power. That's because we've but given them all away in the last two Quite years. a few of the, the tree book, is that right? Yeah, the, the book that I'm that just came out on Earth Day is called Like a Tree, How Trees, Women, and Tree People Can Save the Planet. And where it has to do with, with the ring cycle, which is a bit of a stretch, <laughs> is that, that in the symbology or the sacredness of the sacred tree, uh, the sacred tree at one time was considered like the soul of the world, anima mundi, the axle, the world axle. Uh, the, the tree in the world ash was like that in the, in the, in, in, in the ring cycle. The world ash used to have the three norns and a, a spring, a, a str well, or a well, or right. a spring, mm -hmm. a spring of wisdom. And the women in the story would take water from the spring of wisdom to water the tree, and everything was in harmony. The earth goddess imagined what would come out of the earth, which, of course, everything has come out of the earth. All life has come out of the earth, and. And then she was cut off from that connection in the ring cycle. The tree died after Votan cut off a branch in order to make the spear with all the contracts on it. Tree dies, uh, spring dries up, the Norns no longer have a connection with past, future time. The thread is broken. Uh, by the end, Votan has given up on, on, he couldn't do what he had thought he could do ever, and so he had the world ash, what was left of it, cut into firewood, and uh, it is stacked, ready to burn, and that's actually what burns. And so the idea of the whole, of nature, of, of the planet Earth, because she's beautiful, uh, being destroyed, uh, and if we could get the idea metaphorically, maybe we would not have to actually have it destroyed. If we as a generation got it that it could be destroyed and we did something so that it wouldn't be destroyed knowing how close to the edge we are. And then that why that, I mean even hearing about it, not even seeing it yet because <laughs> I, I see the whole cycle next week. But to, to think that at the end the feminine, a budding feminine representing that in all of us, with a new tree, meaning a new connection to nature, uh, to all that the, the sacred tree represents. It's a symbol of the self in Jungian psychology. It's a, it's a priestess, priest, that, that, that unites heaven and earth. It is such a gorgeous symbol that is up to us to, you know, to keep planting it and mm. doing good things with it and all. Well, Jean, Shinoda Bolin, Christina Flanagan, thank you both so much for being with us at the New School.